All right, guys. Morning. We should get started here. All right, guys, good morning. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. All right, welcome to Foundations, class 52. Uh, This is the Doctrine of Perseverance. And in case we haven't met yet, uh, my name is Adam. My wife Sarah and I have been members here at Delray uh, just under two years. And we've got four children, Joshua, Caleb, Abigail, and Joanna. And before we dive into the word, let us petition the Lord to bless our time and open our hearts to his truth. Please bow with me. Father God, we thank you and praise you for the gift of life, the gift of your word, uh, in which you tell us of the work of your son on the cross on our behalf, and him being raised from the dead and seated at the right hand, interceding for us. Lord, we thank you for the doctrine of perseverance, and pray that you would open our hearts and minds to this truth. May we be edified, encouraged, and equipped for the life that lays before us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So let me start off with a question. Um, It's rhetorical, but how do you know that tomorrow morning, when you wake up, you will still be a Christian? On who or what are you placing your trust that you will still possess a saving faith five or 50 years from now. In a number of passages, the authors in the Bible employ sports imagery to characterize the life of the Christian, in particular, running a race. So let's listen to a few quick passages, uh, starting with Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely... And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In 2 Corinthians 9.24, Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. And later in verse 26, he says, So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And then he concludes in 2 Timothy 4, 7 by saying, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. So here we learn that there is a race that is set before us. We are not to run aimlessly, but in a manner that obtains the prize, and we are to finish the race. So this morning, we are all runners. If you have placed your faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross for your salvation and reconciliation with God, then you are a runner. But you're a runner in a marathon on an obstacle course full of dangers, toils, and snares. So how do we know that when we reach the end of our lives, we will be able to say that we have finished the race, and like Paul, we have kept the faith? And by saying that we have kept the faith, does that mean that we can lose the faith? The New Testament warns us that not all professing Christians finish the race. So what are the obstacles that we should avoid, and whose responsibility is perseverance? Those are the questions we are going to explore, and it will be the doctrine of perseverance that illuminates for us God's truth in these critical questions. 
You see from our handout, our main idea this morning is that God calls all believers to persevere in the faith until we meet Christ face to face, whether it be through our death or his return. And all those truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere until the end. And only those who persevere to the end have been truly born again. We begin with God's call to perseverance. Ever since the Garden of Eden, God has been calling true believers to run the race of faith. To Adam and Eve, he promised that one day the seed of the woman would crush the head of the deceiving serpent and restore the relationship between God and man that our rebellion severed. Noah was called to run the race of faith to build a boat ahead of a catastrophic flood in a land that had not seen rain before. And this race he would run over a hundred years. Hebrews eleven eighteen describes the race to which Abraham was called to endure. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. So he was called to leave the comfort of his homeland and his idols and to wander around in tents in foreign lands. Verse 10 states that he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Galatians 3.6 says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now likewise, Moses was called to leave his royal upbringing in order to be mistreated with his people the people of God, rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Chapter 11, verse 26 of Hebrews says, He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The author of Hebrews then continues chapter 11 with a roll call of ancestors of the faith who were called to run the race of faith and were commended for their perseverance. Now, though they committed some grievous sins adultery, murder, lack of faith, they were remembered ultimately by God for their faith, a faith that they would not abandon. They did not live static lives. They persevered because they were looking to the promised arrival of the one that God said he would send, the one who would be their salvation. They were looking to Christ, the one whose resurrection from the dead we are celebrating today. Now flip back to Hebrews 12, uh, verse 1, which alerts us to the race that is set before us. And if somebody could read the last half of verse uh, verse 1 and continue into verse 2, starting with, let us run. And read it when you got it. Thank you. So like our ancestors in the faith, we are called to look to Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith for our salvation. Now, he is the founder of our faith because he was saving us prior to our call to persevere. Romans 5, 8 states that God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul continues in verse uh, verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, 
much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemy, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. In the Pilgrim's Progress, the protagonist, Christian, is alerted to the fact that he dwells in the city of destruction that will soon be destroyed. He is called to flee immediately to the celestial city, and his only hope of salvation is to persevere on that journey until he reaches the city gates. Because of man's rebellion in the garden, we all live lives that fall short of the glory of God, and we incur his wrath. His wrath at our sin is righteous and it is just. Our sins deserve to be punished because we have failed to live the life that a holy God demands. Romans 5 reminds us that the wrath of God is coming and our sins must be punished. So why did Christ endure the cross in Hebrews 12 too? It's to reconcile us to God. And how did he do this on the cross? 2 Corinthians 5.21 states, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So the joy that was set before Christ in Hebrews 12.2 was to live the life that we could not live, and then go to the cross in our place, to take the punishment that we deserved, to reconcile his people to his Father, and to save us from the coming judgment and the wrath of God. Roman 8, 1 states that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you believe this? Yes. Is this your hope? If so, cling to that as we are about to explore further. But if you are here and the blood of Christ is not your hope, then what is your hope? Do you plan to stand before God in your own righteousness? Hope that he grades on a curve your good works and overlooks the ways that you've fallen short of the standard? Please consider a mercy that you are here today and ask him to help you believe his promise of salvation in his son, to help you repent from your sin and begin your own journey from death to life. So our first point here um, under what is God's call to perseverance is that perseverance is assured by God. It's even possible because of who God is. Now, we know from previous foundations classes that God devised and decreed this plan of salvation with his son prior to the foundation of the world. So he is sovereign over the beginning and the end. It is his sovereignty that assures us that perseverance is possible. So let's take a look at a few verses. If someone could get John 6, 37 through 40, John 10, 27 to 30, and Romans 8, 38 and 39. Who's got John 6, 37 to 40? Eric? All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Mm. 
So he says that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. How about John 10, 27 to 30? Who's got that? Thank you. So no one will snatch them out of my hand. How about Romans 8, 38, 39? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you, Peter. So nothing can separate us from the love of God. Both John and Paul assert that there are no external forces that can remove God's people from his hand. They cannot be lost, they cannot be snatched, and they cannot be separated. And just prior to this assertion in Romans 8, uh, 38-39, Paul expounded in 8.30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There is not a hint in the, pro- in the purposes of God that can be foiled and that there can be a break in the sacred chain that binds those called on earth to their eventual glorification in heaven. So perseverance is assured by God. But perseverance is also necessary for salvation. God calls us to persevere because perseverance is necessary for salvation. Big letter B on our outline. Now, Garrett has used the analogy of a river flowing to destruction to describe our journey of faith. We must press forward to reach salvation. And if we are not pressing forward, we are drifting backward. Life is kinetic. There is no neutral position. And I can think back to times in my own walk when I wasn't pressing forward through either neglect of my faith um, some of this I shared in my baptism testimony, but I didn't recognize that Because I wasn't pressing forward, I was actually drifting backwards. And it wasn't until God opened my eyes that I saw just how far I had come, but how far his reach was still for me. So let's turn to a few passages that help us understand um, why perseverance is necessary for salvation. Um, Let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Someone could get that, Josh. Um, Colossians 1, 21 to 23. Somebody went volunteer for that? Thank you. Second Timothy 2, 11 and 12. Got a volunteer for that? I'll grab that one. Um, and then I'll do Mark 13, 13. <clears throat> How about 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2? Josh? Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. So, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. What about Colossians 1, 21 and 23? And you, who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body and flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. 
So if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12 says, The saying is trustworthy, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. And in Mark 13, 13, But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So we see that salvation comes through believing in the gospel if we hold fast to the gospel, if we continue in the faith, if we endure, and if we conquer. Now we know from Ephesians 2.8 that by grace we are saved through faith. And Garrett will be expositing the rich text of 1 Peter 3, uh, 1, 3 through 5 in a, in a little bit today. But let's take a quick look at verse 5, um, who's, which states, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So we are saved through faith, and we are guarded through faith. And as we see from the verses that we just read, we persevere by continuing on in that faith. Continuing on demonstrates faith. Perseverance consists of continuing to trust in the cross of Christ. If we abandon this faith, we are turning to someone or something else for salvation, which suggests that we may not truly be saved after all. That brings us to point C. Perseverance is evidence of salvation. John 8.31, um, I'll read that. If someone could get 1 John 2, 3 through 6. Got a volunteer for that? Ben? And 1 Peter 1, 10 through 11. Thomas? John 8, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. About 1 John 2, 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. Whoever keeps the word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So we ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. About 2 Peter 1, 10 through 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. But inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he, predict, when he predicted the sufferings of Christ, the subsequent glory. I may have had the wrong reference. Let me make sure it's. First Peter. Uh, second Peter. Sorry, 1, no, 10, and 11. No, no, no. This is it. This is it. Second Peter. Uh, I That's right. That's my point. Sorry. That's all right. Uh, 10 and 11. All scripture is God breathed. <laughs> Verse 10 11, right? Yeah. Therefore, brothers, we all the more be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you are for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly they will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior. So we are to be all the more diligent to confirm our calling and election. 
And the qualities that he's talking about are found in verse 5, which is uh, supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So if, uh, if we practice those qualities, we will never fall. Uh, Philippians three twelve through 14 says, From Paul, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So the proof of our calling is in the crop that we produce, it's the work that we do. Paul exhorts us to be zealous to confirm our calling. And he continues that we should forget what lies behind, the city of destruction, and continue on and press on towards the prize that awaits us, the race uh, that we run, uh, which is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So in our next section, we're going to drill down a little further to address the fact that perseverance is both God's work, yet our responsibility. And before we do that, are there any questions at this point? Or clarification? Mark? Oh, stretching? All right. All right, so let's look at point two. Um, who is responsible for our perseverance? To kick off this section, can I get a volunteer to read Jude 21 to 25? Dish? Thank you. So big letter A there. Perseverance is the believer's responsibility. Jude instructs us to keep ourselves in the love of God. And we know from prior passages that God loves us, but here we must keep ourselves in that love. Other authors in the New Testament likewise encourage us to invest our time and energy to making sure that we persevere in the faith. John in 1 John 2.28 says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. In 1 Timothy 6.12, Paul says, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Hebrews 19.35 Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. 
For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. And then Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then let me hearken back to our first verse that we read in Hebrews 12.1, to lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely so that we can run with endurance the race that is set before us. So these exhortations assume that perseverance is the work and responsibility of every individual Christian. We cannot rely on past glories or past professions of faith, but we must demonstrate our faith through perseverance day by day. But this is only half the picture. To end here might imply that we are either responsible for our own salvation or we obtain salvation through our own works. Perseverance is our responsibility because God has called us to respond and obey in perseverance. We do this through faith. Responding in faith is evidence of our salvation, but our effort to persevere is not the source of our salvation. Back to Ephesians 2.8, this time with verse 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, but this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. So that brings us to big letter B. Perseverance is God's work. So just as salvation in Jesus Christ is the plan of God and the faith to accept it is the gift of God, persevering in the faith is the work of God. Back to our passage in Jude. Jude did not put his confidence in the reader's hard work or effort to hang in there. Look at verse 24, which we have frequently heard Garrett use as a benediction at the conclusion of our services. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So believers can have confidence that they will endure until the end because God himself is the one who keeps his sheep faithful. A few other passages, very well known, Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it, bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So just as Jude encourages us to keep ourselves in the love of God, and it is God who is able to keep us from stumbling, Paul connects the two if, uh, in Philippians 2, 12, and 13. We just read verse 12, but let's read them together, 12 and 13. Can someone get that? Thank you. So God is sovereign over the ends, but he is also sovereign over the means to those ends. So let's drill a little deeper by looking at three specific truths that assure us of our perseverance because of the work of God for our perseverance. So subpoint one there, God chose us in Christ. Uh, Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, can someone get that? And then uh, Romans uh, 8, 30. 
which we read. Um, yeah, we'll do those two for now. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. So even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Romans 8.30, which we read before, but those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So not only has God set his love on us, but determined our eternal destiny as his people, a destiny that Paul describes as one of glorification, indicating perseverance to that glorification. Again, uh, which Garrett uh, is going to preach to us on 1 Peter 1, uh, 3 through 5. But it says that by faith we are shielded by God's power for the inheritance which is reserved in heaven for us. So Peter emphasizes faith and perseverance, but there is no such thing as perseverance without faith. Those who have faith, which is a gift from God, will persevere. So subpoint two, God indwells us by his spirit. Uh, can someone get John 14, 6 through 17? And uh, Ephesians 1, 14 through 15? John 14, 16 through 17? And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of Mm, praise the Lord. Uh, Ephesians 1, 14 and 15. So the Spirit dwells with us and is in us, and we were sealed with that promised Spirit. Um, I think it was two weeks ago, Dan Jamibawan um, gave a great foundations class on the Holy Spirit and sealing. Uh, so if you missed that, go back. That uh, goes in great depth uh, on that and the assurance that we have from that. But we see that Jesus promised a counselor who would dwell with us and in us and who seals us and is the guarantee of our inheritance. Uh, Puritan Thomas Watson encourages us with these words. He who dwells in a house keeps the house in repair. So the spirit dwelling in the believer keeps grace in repair. Grace is compared to a river of the water of life in John 17, 18. And this river, river can never be dried up because God's spirit is the spring that continually feeds it. So subpoint three is that Christ intercedes for us. So we can have assurance of perseverance because, because Christ intercedes for us today, right now. Romans 8.34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25 
Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. Hebrews 6, 19 through 20, we find out that he is the forerunner on our behalf. He is the high priest. John, uh, 1 John 2, 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous. Two of the prayers that, we, that are recorded for us, one in John 17, 25, Jesus is praying for us. He says, Father, I desire that they, also, that they also whom you have given me may be where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And then in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, he says, Simon, Simon, which is Peter, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Babatunde taught a great class, uh, foundations class, on the continuing intercessory work of Jesus in his office as the great high priest. Jesus continues on as our heavenly advocate sitting at the right hand of the Father. While on earth, he prayed for the preservation of the faith of Peter. And in John 17, he prayed for our preservation as well. And in the case of Peter, we see that relying on his own strength failed him. And likewise, we cannot rely on our own strength but only upon Christ's faithfulness in helping us persevere. He did so with Peter, and he will do so with us. So let's take a moment for any questions, clarification, before we blaze forward to the means of hindrances, of uh, uh, perseverance, the means of perseverance, and what we are persevering towards. Any questions at this point? Please. The uh, two songs I kept going through my head as I was preparing this one was He Will Hold Me Fast. Uh, and then um, the, the verse in Amazing Grace. Um, you know, yeah, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come to His grace that brought me safe this far, and grace will lead me home. All right. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's light it up and blaze forward. Uh, big point number three, what are the hindrances to perseverance? 
Now, we're not going to spend too much time in the outline on this because much of this has been covered in previous foundations classes. But by way of reminder, we are told that we have an adversary, and he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We are warned that his workers disguise themselves as sons of righteousness. And all of these references are there, and you can read them in your own study. We are told that there are false brothers among us, and we are to be discerning wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We are told that sin is crouching at the door and it desires to rule over us. We know that the heart is deceitful. We live in the already not yet tension, which means that while we stand justified and our sins have been forgiven as a past transaction when we were regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and we do possess eternal life, but we have not yet obtained that, we therefore remain in a fallen flesh and a cursed world. We do not reach perfection until our glorification, which is why we continue to need an advocate when we sin. So we are called to put to death the deeds of the flesh and need the power of God to help us do that. However, we can do this because we are no longer slaves to sin because we have been set free by Christ. So as I alluded to in the introduction, not all who profess to follow Christ will remain with Christ. In a recent uh, R.C. Sproul radio broadcast, he asserted basically that there are four types of people. There are those who are regenerated and know it and don't care. And there are those who are regenerated and know it and persevere in the faith. And I hope this includes all of us here. Then there are those who are regenerated or soon will be, but they don't know it yet. Praise the Lord for that. Keep witnessing to them. Because who knows if you will be the 17th presenter of the gospel that saved a wretch such as the pastor who now edifies us with the gospel. And then there's the fourth category, those who think they are regenerated but are not. So there are some professing Christians who take false assurance in a flippant phrase, once saved, always saved, as if praying a prayer inoculates you against the disease of hell, but then you can go on living any way you want. And there is no doctrine in the Bible that states that. And that can be a whole other class, and maybe it will be. But the question that we will briefly chew on in the next two sections is, what about those who profess a faith, but then who wander from that faith? And what about those terrifying passages as warnings in Hebrews, which Garrett is going to be uh, teaching on in a couple uh, upcoming Bible studies? And can a true believer lose their faith? The short answer for our time from our previous points is no. Yet the Bible and the testimony and the generations that follow are full of examples of people who appear to have been saved but are no longer running the race. And if we have time, we can talk about a few of those. But how can this be? How can someone profess faith in Christ and then no longer walk with Christ? 1 John 2.19 gives us a clue. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it, might be, be, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Let's take an even closer look at this in Mark 4. Let's all turn there. And I need two volunteers, one to read verses 3 through 8, and someone else 14 to 20. And we'll start with 3 through 8. <coughs> And I'll confess that before I understood God's grace, um, this parable haunted me, as did the 
passages in Hebrews, which we'll talk about in a minute. But let's look at uh, Mark 4, parable of the sower. Thank you. So the disciples who hear this are baffled. Um, and they had to go to Jesus and say, what does that mean? So let's look at what Jesus responds in 14 to 20. Thank you. So the first seeds along the path reveal a heart hardened to God's word. They have no interest in God's word. Or perhaps the path is a well-worn path, and their hearts are hardened by the very activity of listening to the word of God, but not hearing it through faith. Hebrews 2.4 states, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listen. The fourth soil, the good soil, represents those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. Those are the branches in John 15 who also bear fruit. But let's take a look at the second uh, two soils. Because even as true believers, we are likely to face trials and temptations in this part of the real estate of faith. The authenticity of the second soil is revealed by persecution. Robert Nicholson of the Philos Project was quoted in a recent article on Christians in the Middle East. He says, Believing that a man named Jesus Christ was crucified and rose again for the sins of the world is still one of the most dangerous things one can do in many parts of the world. So Jesus warns us in John 15, 20, If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And John 16, 33, in this world, you will have tribulation. Mike McKinley observes, apparently there is no way to follow after a Messiah who is crucified by the world's powers that doesn't involve suffering. And Dave Furman gave a great sermon last week on this, um, something not to miss and go back and catch if, if you did. So the second soilers hear the good news and receive it with joy and get excited about Jesus, and they enjoy their new Christian community. They may be baptized, they might join a church, and even start wearing those Jesus CrossFit t-shirts, you know, the one with the cross and the dumbbells. But then comes the persecution. 
might be subtle at first in the form of a raised eyebrow at the t-shirt, at the joy that you have, or perhaps even more threatening in the form of a boss who threatens to fire you if you witness to your coworker again, or the government who says that they will jail you or deprive you of your livelihood. And there are several of those cases in the headlines here in America right now on that. At some point, someone may come knocking on this door with new rules for our pastor and our congregation. So do we accept and reflect on the need to count the cost of following Jesus, and do we share, with, uh, share this cost with those to whom we are witnessing before they decide to follow Jesus? On your own time, it's on the handout. Read through Hebrews 10, 32 to 39, which describes the persecuted Christians joyfully accepting the plundering of their property for the sake of the gospel. There was no amount of trouble that can pry them loose. Yet we see here in this passage that there are those who abandon Christ in the rocky soil. They reach a point where the cost is no longer worth it. They love the community, not digging the extra negative attention. The third soil contains thorns, which chokes out the word. And these thorns are identified as the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things, which render these seeds unfruitful. The cares of the world, we all have them. They can be good things. They can be good things that become idols. There are dangers in both poverty and prosperity. Poverty may tempt some to abandon Christ for greener pastures, while prosperity causes others to lose sight of him because they are fixated on something else. In the end, it matters not how much or how little you have, but where you are placing your hope. Matthew reminds us that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. So what are some of the cares of this world that we face today? Let's name a couple of them. Let's call them out. Money. Money. Power. Power. Mm-hmm. Houses are expensive. Mortgages are expensive. Upkeep is expensive. Mm-hmm. Reputation. Career. Yep. Comfort. Yeah. Or lack of career. Health. Broken body parts. Yeah. Now, we all live in an affluent country and an affluent um, area. And the Bible particularly warns us about the deceitfulness of riches. So just a quick look at that. Material possessions can become idols that relieve any pain that we have in our souls and numb our need for Jesus. Wealth can tempt us to trust in our wealth, which we can see rather than in Jesus. Prosperity means that we have more to lose and more to give up in order to leave everything to follow Christ. The rich young ruler was a case study in that. Riches are hard to come by. And the pursuit of them, whether it's in the name of security or in the name of greed, leaves less time for the spiritual disciplines. And finally, the more we own, the more we have to treasure instead of Christ. Matthew 13, 44 through 46 offers two short parables that expound that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that you sell everything you own to obtain. And then may we be able to pray the prayer of Proverbs 30, 8 through 9. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. 
Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So there is nothing wrong with riches so long as we enjoy them as given by the Creator and use them for His glory. But they quickly become idols and weigh us down. So the rocky and thorny soils represent professing Christians who abandon Christ mid-faith. A true believer will not be uprooted by persecution or choked out by the cares of the world. And one final word here before... um, But one final word to the true believers in this room before we move on. Thinking back to Hebrews 12, 1. Think about what are the weights that are in your own life that need to be laid aside. Maybe concerned about the mortgage we talked about, or your health, the health of a loved one, job, lack of job, wayward child that you hope returns to the faith. 1 Peter 5, 7 reminds us that we can lay aside these and cast these anxieties on Christ because he cares for us. And then likewise, what is the sin in your life that clings so closely? 1 John 1.19, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. So we can outrun the good race with the weight of the cares of the world, and we will not persevere with the sin that clings to our feet and restricts our stride. I wish we had more time in this area, but we don't. But any questions? Quick ones? Okay. Let's look quickly at point four. What are the means of perseverance? So points one and two, we should uh, take encouragement that as true believers, we can persevere because God is persevering with us. John 10, 27 through 30, the passage about the sheep, reminds us that we are in the, the double protection of the hands of Christ and his Father holding us up. And as we have previously explored, God works sovereignly in our lives by initiating salvation, calling us to perseverance, and then enabling that perseverance through faith. So let's look briefly at how he works through three specific means of perseverance because he does make provision for us to persevere. Subpoint A, we have the word of God. Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that, that I might not sin against you. And then in Luke 22, 61 to 62, when Peter has denied Christ and the rooster crows, it says that the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said before the rooster crows he would deny him three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. So he remembered the word of the Lord, the saying of his Lord. But Peter must have also remembered that Jesus prayed for him. And in verse 32 of uh, 22, he said that he would turn again, and when he turns again, to strengthen the brothers. So the word of Christ tilled the soil in Peter's heart to weed out the thorns and then reveal the good soil in which to plant crops that would yield a hundredfold. And we have already covered many of the exhortations in in our responsibility to persevere, as well as a couple warnings about falling away. But the warnings in Hebrews 6 and uh, Hebrews 10 are even more disturbing and stark than those in the parable of the sower because they seem to warn, warn that once you fall away in apostasy, you cannot be brought back. This is because you have abandoned the only means of salvation there is, perseverance through abiding faith in the atoning work of Christ Jesus. 
on the cross. So God warns us against falling away, not because it is possible for a true believer to fall away. Uh, Hold on, I lost my spot. God warns us against falling away, not because it is possible for a true believer to be lost, but because those warnings are one of the means God uses to warn and exhort his people to persevere. Those warnings are not meant to cause the true believer to doubt if they are really saved or to fear that one day they will commit apostasy. That would be like a parent warning a child not to run into the street or they might be run over by a car and then that child wondering if they're alive. It doesn't make sense. No, they are not to run, uh, they are not run over by a car because they heed the warning not to run in the street. True believers persevere because they actively heed the warning not to fall away. The presence of the warning perseveres, uh, preserves their perseverance. There's a lot more we could get into there, um, but I recommend grabbing Garrett and going to his class on Hebrews because he'll get into that. But the warnings are there to help us persevere. Subpoint B, what are the, um, we have the means of obedience to the Christian duties. Adam and Eve had Christian duties. They failed. David was supposed to be out with the kings during the, the time when kings would, would, would go to uh, battle. Instead, he was chilling on his rooftop. Both of those had catastrophic consequences. When we neglect our Christian duties and we fail to pursue the disciplines of prayer, reading God's word, witnessing, meeting together, and men leading your family in worship, we are setting our, ourselves up and those under our care for a backslide. Now, backsliding doesn't equate with apostasy. If we repent, pursue Christ, and take up the Christian duties that help us persevere. And then the subpoint C, we have the means of Christian fellowship. Those of us in this room, those of us in this church. Last week, Garrett talked about the spiritual gifts and the fact that we are one body with many members. Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, they exhort us to spiritual progress through ministering to others and receiving ministry from others. We belong in a living, praying, worshiping community of God's people. Um, one passage, Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we are to exhort and encourage one another and continue meeting. And that brings us to our final point. What are we persevering towards? Subpoint A, the promise of the resurrection. As we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, which was God's validation of his work, his words on the cross, it is finished. By saying this, he was saying the fulfillment of the plan of salvation that was determined before the foundation of the world was finished. It was sufficient. God validated that by raising him from the dead. We should be encouraged to persevere because Christ persevered for us. Philippians 3.10, Paul expresses a desire by any means possible to obtain the resurrection of the dead. Because Jesus was raised and conquered sin and death and satisfied the wrath of God toward our sin, he can rightfully assert in John 6 and 10 that he will raise us up in the last days. But John 5, 28, 29, Acts 24, 15 declare that all the dead will be raised, but not all the dead are heading to the same destination. Paul is speaking to Governor Felix when he says, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept 
that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. In John 5, 28, 29, John says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Who have, um, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So how do we obtain the resurrection of life? Jesus tells Martha. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That's John eleven twenty five. 25. Subpoint B, we are promised not only resurrection, but eternal life. John three sixteen. For whoever, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The present tense of believes could be translated keeps on believing. We persevere because we have been promised eternal life. And John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So persevering faith continues to place its full weight on the promise of the sufficiency of the work of Christ. Our final point is that we persevere because in the end we get God. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city and the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And then in verse 7, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now that is worth persevering for. May we be able to declare like Paul that we have finished our race and that we have kept the faith. Any final questions? Merck, can you pray us out?